Well, it is, again, a great privilege. I think I'll just say that just to be filling the beginning. I just always think it's a great privilege that we can come together and study God's Word, and I'm just thrilled with the book of John. It's a tremendous portion of Scripture, as always. It's an encouraging portion of Scripture. It's really going to challenge us on how important it is for us to maintain our joy that has been given to us because of Christ. Your sorrow will be turned into joy is the is the um, title for the sermon. And we're going to also have the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper together as, again, the verses, the topic of the verses before us are going to fit very well into the ordinance that the Lord has left for us to do in remembrance of Him. Again, you're familiar where we are. We're in the night before the Lord is about to be betrayed. We're literally only a couple hours away from His arrest. Uh, later on that uh, uh, next day, uh, and uh, maybe we're even past midnight at this point, uh, later on on Friday, he's going to be crucified. I mentioned to you numerous times that the evening started back up in a rented room in chapter 13, and the Lord gathered his disciples together to celebrate the Passover. And it was earlier on that evening, earlier there on uh, Thursday, that the Lord takes uh, this most important Jewish celebration of the Passover, uh, again, a special meal designed by God to commemorate God's deliverance of the nation of Israel from the land of Egypt as they had been in bondage there for some 400 years. And deliverance that occurred only after God sent a series of plagues upon Egypt uh, with the express intent of freeing the nation from the, the clutches of Pharaoh. And it was only after the last plague, the death of the firstborn, throughout the entire land of Egypt that Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh uh, finally agreed to let the nation of Israel go. And again, as you remember, the Passover meal was a memorial of remembrance of Israel's physical deliverance from Egypt via a blood sacrifice. Because the people who were obedient to the word of the Lord uh, protected themselves from the angel of death as they took the blood of the slain lamb in accordance with God's command and they applied the blood to the doorposts and the lintel or the top of the, the doorframe of their houses. And when the angel of death saw the blood of the lamb applied, he passed over that home, sparing the life of the firstborn. But this evening, the Lord has taken that uh, uh, most important uh, Jewish celebration, and he's transformed the Passover meal into the first Lord's Supper. He's changed it from a remembrance of God's physical deliverance of Egypt and their bondage to Egypt uh, to now celebrating the Lord's deliverance from something even greater, that being God's deliverance by blood of our bondage to sin. Again, the bread and the the wine of the Passover meal merely representing the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think it's tremendously important for us to remember that, to have that in the back of our minds again this last evening together with the disciples as it comes to a close. Because the next day as it comes, Friday afternoon, uh, there is going to be Jesus Christ who is the perfect sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice offered once in a once-for-all-time, never-again-needing-to-be-repeated sacrifice as the Lord Jesus Christ himself fulfills the Passover. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5-7. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Because, again, John says Jesus is the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world, right? The Lamb of God who takes away the, the sin of the world. So that's what's going to happen. That's what is happening. That's what he celebrated earlier. That's what's coming on the next day. At this moment, all the, the entire economy of God is about to be changed in a very short amount of time on Friday. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to hang upon the cross of Calvary. The veil of the temple is going to be torn from top to bottom. The Mosaic law is going to be completely done away with, again, along with the Passover sacrifice. And all those things that once separated God and man uh, are all going to be done away with. And men are going to be now able to enter into the very presence of God in this new age under what is known as the new covenant. Again, the old covenant being set aside, the new covenant is about to be inaugurated and will be so when the Lord Jesus Christ, or he uh, foretold of this uh, inauguration when he took up the cup there in the last uh, Passover, the first Lord's Supper that represented his shed blood. Luke 22 verse 20 says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, right? So again, we're probably at at the the text here in John 16, we're probably no more than a couple hours from the Lord being arrested there in the Garden of of Gethsemane, falsely tried and then executed. And as I told you, 
uh, as the time approaches, as the time draws nearer for these events to take place, the issue of the suffering and the death of, of the Lord Jesus Christ is more and more in the forefront of his mind. He began by telling his disciples of his suffering and death in somewhat veiled uh, manner, but then he became more and more specific in the details. For example, Matthew 20, verse 17 says, As Jesus went, was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and then on the third day be raised up. Mark 9, verse 31 says, For as he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men, they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, because, and they were afraid to ask him. So I told you before, the, the disciples, really, they have no category for a dying Messiah. He's told them what's going to happen. They have no category for a dying Messiah. Again, they rightly believe that Jesus is that Messiah. And again, associated with the Messiah all the way through the Old Testament, it was when the Messiah came, he would set up his kingdom. He he would establish his rule in Jerusalem. He would destroy all of Israel's enemies. And he would rule the world from his throne there in Jerusalem, bringing salvation to that nation and and, uh, again, a rule over the entire world. And that's exactly what they expected. And then all of a sudden he starts talking about dying. And that's confusing to them. That's obviously troubling to them. And not only that he is going to die, but the fact is that he's going to suffer and he's going to be executed. And again, not only is he going to suffer, but they're going to suffer with him because of their association with him. And again, they don't have a category for it. They can't process it. They don't understand it. And they don't want any more information because at this moment they're afraid to ask. They're afraid to ask. So not only do they not have a category for a dying Messiah, they certainly don't have a category for a, a resurrection. So again, when he says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, they'll kill him, but then once he has been killed, he will rise up three days later. And again, it says they don't understand the statement. They don't have a category. They're afraid to ask. They don't have a category. They don't understand the dying Messiah. They don't understand a resurrected Messiah. So all of this to say, as we've been following this story at this moment, sorrow has filled their hearts. Sorrow in their hearts is growing. Again, he's told them they're going to leave, that he's going to leave. He's told them suffering and persecution is coming for him and for them. He's tried unsuccessfully to encourage them. John 14, 1, remember he says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in me. Verse 27 of that chapter, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Do I give to you? Let your heart, or let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Now look at John 16, verse 6. Even though he has said those things, right? John 16, 6. Because I have said these things, those very things to you, sorrow has, and here's the word, filled. Sorrow has filled your heart. Pleureo. Made full. Full to the max. Full to the top. Uh, cause to abound. What he's saying is that sorrow at this moment has pushed out every other emotion. Sorrow completely dominates them. Sorrow has taken over in spite of the Lord's words to try to be an encouragement to them and try to encourage them uh, by the truth. Again, the Lord has promised that he would rise from the dead. The Lord has promised that he will send to them a helper, the person of the Holy Spirit, who will come and take his place when he departs. And again, in spite of his promise that it was to their advantage if he departed, again, at this moment, sorrow has completely overwhelmed them. And so focused are they on themselves, so focused are they on their sorrow or so overwhelmed with the sorrow they can't process anything else that the lord has to say they can't process anything process anything the lord is telling them again look back up at verse 12 i have many more things to say to you but you cannot bear them now more more to say to you but you can't handle it can't handle it right now verse 13 but when he the spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative but whenever he hears or whatever he hears he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come so again they can't process any more information at the moment but the lord in his kindness he's promised to send to them the helper who is the spirit of the truth who will guide all these men into the truth and as i told you previously ultimately that really is the promise of the coming of the new testament text Uh, the whole body of fixed knowledge, the whole body of fixed Christian doctrine that, again, is contained in the the New Testament. 
And the Holy Spirit is going to work through these men, through the writers, the inspired writers of the New Testament, to write down everything that the Lord has to say and everything that the Lord wants us to know, again, coming from the mind of God. And the ultimate purpose of the Holy Spirit, the ultimate purpose of the revelation of the Holy Spirit to these men and to the world, verse 14, he shall glorify me. We talked about that a lot last time. All the nonsense that goes on in the charismatic movement that takes away from the glory of Christ, the true spirit, the Holy Spirit, he shall glorify me. For he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. Now, as I also said last time, Satan, his kingdom, he blinds the minds of the unbelieving so they can't understand the gospel and they can't see the glory of Christ. But the Holy Spirit's chief purpose in the world is to glorify Christ, to make him known, to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Jesus says, verse 15, all these things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said to you that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So again, in the immediate context, the Lord is speaking to these apostles. Again, it's a promise to cause to their minds, to bring to their mind remembrance and to record down everything that the Lord or that the Holy Spirit would have them know, again, which will be written down coming up right in in the New Testament text. So again, the Lord's really trying to encourage their hearts. He's trying to give them hope. And he wants to, listen, he wants to He's promising, not just that he wants to, but he's really promising to turn their sorrow into joy. He's promising to turn their sorrow into joy. Verse 16, a little while you will no longer behold me, and again, a little while you will see me. Now, I told you that sorrow really is currently dominating their emotions, but he wants to replace that. He he wants joy to dominate their emotions because, again, he knows what's about to take place. He knows what's coming in the uh, soon, very soon coming hours. He knows the immense sorrow uh, uh, is even going to more engulf them. But he knows that their sorrow is going to be alleviated on Sunday evening. And again, the Lord is completely focused on these men, on these disciples. He's completely focused on on caring for them and giving compassion, uh, displaying compassion to them. But what exactly does verse 16, the verse that we start out this morning looking at in our text, what does it mean? Now, there are a lot of different uh, opinions on this, but, but the whole thing uh, surrounds this little phrase, a little while, a little while. It's repeated seven times in the, in the next four verses. Verse 16 again, a little while, and you will no longer behold me, and again, a little while, you will see me. Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, what is this thing that he's telling us? A little while, and you will not behold me. And again, a little while, you will see me, and because I go to the Father. And so they were saying, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. Verse 19, Jesus knew they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating about this that I said? A little while, and you will not behold me. And again, a little while, you will see me. So a little while, what does that mean? Well, the Lord used it earlier. He used it back in uh, John chapter 7, for uh, example. He used it as a reference to the time remaining before his departure. John 7, verse 33, For a little while longer I am with you, then I go to be with him who sent me. And in that context, it's just months. So it's months away. So it's a little bit out there. John 12, verse 35, For a little while longer the light is among you. That's probably just days before he departs. Uh, John thirteen thirty three, <coughs> excuse me, little children, I am with you a little while longer. John fourteen nineteen. after a little while, the world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. And again, here in our text, verse 16, a little while, you will no longer behold me. And again, a little while, you will see me. So it has to do with a time factor. And the issue between the commentators concerns really uh, the, how the second a little while that phrase is used. Everyone, for the most part, would agree that the first a little while uh, must be referring to the events surrounding the cross that are upcoming. A little while, you will no longer behold me. But then the second time and a little while you will see me, that's where the disagreement comes uh, amongst the commentators. Now, there's probably enough confusion uh, out there. There's always confusion amongst the commentators, but there's enough confusion amongst the disciples. We see that evident in the statement, verse 18, and they're saying, what is this he says? What is this that he says a little while? We don't know what he's talking about, right? So we'll put that right up front. 
Now, the first time the phrase a little while is used, it has to be, again, referring to the events surrounding the cross. Again, look down at verse 19. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not behold me and in a little while you will see me? Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. So again, it's the events that are already sad, right? Sadness has overfilled their emotions, but the coming events of the cross is going to cause them even greater sorrow. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So again, he's explaining how both he and they are going to sorrow and suffer through the events upcoming of the cross. But then look very carefully. He says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. And that's a very important point we're going to come back to just in a moment. That through the cross and through the suffering of the cross, their sorrow is going to turn into or give way to joy. So again, the question still remains, what does it mean the second time that he uses that phrase, a little while, right? A little while you'll no longer behold me, and then a little while you'll see me. Now, there are three major lines of thinking, uh, three different lines of thoughts or interpretation, if you will. Uh, Some, again, suggesting because the disciples don't understand what he's saying. Again, in that verse 18 passage, maybe the ambiguity by the Lord is intentional. Maybe the ambiguity perhaps suggests in the Lord's mind uh, there's more than one meaning possible, but I'm not going to land there. But I'll just give you, that's a possibility. So again, what is he talking about? A little time when you will, he will not be seen, and then uh, some time will be marked, that time will be marked by sorrow, and and then by rejoicing in the world. And and then a little while, another space of time, he's seen again, and, and they're going to become joyful, and their sorrow will be turned into joy. Well, let me give you just the three major lines right up front, and then we'll go back and work our way through them. So here, here they are. The first thought, the first line of interpretation is it just simp- simply means that at Jesus' death, and then three days after his, and three days later of entombment, uh, he's going to be seen, right? Uh, he's not seen, and then the resurrection follows. A little while you will not see me. There's the, there's the crucifixion, but then a little while you'll see me. So that's the first line of thought. Secondly, some suggest that this uh, statement in verse 16 indicates a period of time before and after Pentecost. Uh, A little time you will not see me, but then a little while you'll see me. So some people say that phrase a little while means all of the events that are set in motion at his death at the cross. All that uh, culminates in uh, his, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and this is the kind of the kicker on this one and the events of pentecost it's all included in there so again a little while you will not see me then a little while you'll see me again suggesting that the coming of the holy spirit at pentecost at that moment then christ is going to be seen again in a spiritual way because he's going to be seen in and through the person of the holy spirit so that's the second line the third line of uh, thought is that perhaps this little while time frame is really a description of the age of the church again christ uh, the events take place at the cross Christ is dead, buried, raised after the resurrection and ascension. A short time, a little while. Uh, really, in, in thinking about uh, eternity, and compared to that, the age of the church, that's a possibility. That's what it means, a little while. You're not going to see Christ again with your physical eyes until after the return, the return of the Lord in glory at his, his second coming. Then you'll see him face to face, and then all of our sorrows in this world will be turned into joy. So those are the three main lines of uh, argument. So let's go back and kind of unpack those a bit and, and look a little deeper and to see which one probably best fits. Uh, again, the first one concerning his death and resurrection. A little while you will no longer behold me, and again a little while you'll see me. Now, obviously at first look, this one has a tremendous amount of merit. And, and many say this is the obvious and natural interpretation because of the context. He, he's trying to encourage the disciples because of uh, the events that are upcoming. And again, it's the eve of his arrest. And when he is arrested, from that point forward, he's going to be separated from them, and they're going to sorrow. And their sorrow is going to increase at his crucifixion and death. A little while, first one, a little while, literally just hours away, and you will no longer behold me. But then, a little while, three days later, right, you will see me. And again, those who would hold to the 
uh, this interpretation say the second little while speaks of his resurrection. It's a strong possibility. Uh, point number one has a lot of merit. Again, although the Lord in his kindness is trying to prepare his disciples for what's coming, again, their sorrow is just so much they just can't understand anything. They're having a hard time listening to what he's saying to them. So again, the events that are just going to unfold in the next few hours, he's suddenly taken from them, he's crucified, and obviously they're plunged into absolute despondency. Look down at verse 20. You will weep and lament. Not just sor- sorrow. <clears throat> you will weep and lament. Now obviously they're going to have a great amount of sorrow because of their loss of him. I mean, they love the Lord. They, they wanted to be with him. They were with him. Uh, and, and he's going to be gone forever. That's what they thought. He's going to die. And again, we're all familiar in, in this world with the sorrow that death and separation brings and in a fallen world. We understand that kind of sorrow when someone whom we love passes away. But some, in some sense, this loss here is even greater than that that we would suffer because Jesus is the Lord of glory. Jesus is the one whom they rightly, truly believe was the Messiah. That's who he is, and now he's gone. He's dead. He's been removed. And then on top of that, there's a terrible injustice of the whole events that must have overwhelmed them and added to their sorrow. Again, the terrible injustice and the horror of the crucifixion. For three years, they walked with the Lord Jesus Christ. They lived with him. Uh, They knew that he was innocent. They knew of his great love. They knew of his great compassion. But then he was arrested and and, and charged on on false charges. And then he's given a mock trial. He's, again, falsely accused, charged with blasphemy by the religious leaders who are themselves the true blasphemers. Even Pilate, who is a pagan, even he knows after he examines Jesus that Jesus was innocent. And he told the crowd that very truth, that, that he was innocent, Jesus was innocent. And what did the crowd do? They cried out for his blood. They demanded that Pilate would have him crucified. They yelled out, crucify him, crucify him. So again, the disciples' sorrow is going to be overwhelming. He's gone. He's been grossly mistreated. He's been unjustly tried. And again, they knew with an absolute shadow, without a shadow of a doubt, that he was absolutely innocent. But on top of that, additionally, while they lament, the world's going to celebrate. Again, look there at verse 20. You will weep and lament, but here it is, the world will rejoice. The world, again, we talked about this a lot lately, right? The anti-God, anti-Christ system, the anti-Scripture world system that is ruled by Satan and his demons and all the ungodly and unregenerate men and women of this world. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Again, the world represented in the the context of the story is represented by the Jewish religious leaders. They weren't sorrowing by the loss of Jesus. They're actually going to rejoice, right? They're jubilant. Jesus is out of the way. Now he's no longer a problem to them. Again, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they're rejoicing. They who represent the spirit of the age, they're jumping up and down, as it were, and they're saying, at least we got rid of him. But the sorrow of the disciples is overwhelming and growing. Jesus is dead. Jesus is gone. There's been a terrible injustice in the whole thing. And and that sorrow has increased because of that. And then their sorrow has increased because of the wicked world's reaction to the murder of Jesus. And then on top of that, you compound all the horrors of the crucifixion, all the horrors of the cross, where Jesus' arms and legs are nailed in torment to a wooden beam, and he's lifted up in a shameful condemnation, all the physical agony of the cross. And then the tremendous spiritual torment of the cross is awful. So much so it causes the Lord Jesus to cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, so again, these upcoming events, this must add to the compounding horror and sadness of their heart. This must have broken their hearts. You'll weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So again, we understand that. We, we look back to a certain extent. We look back at the horror of the cross, and historically, rightfully so, we see the, the sorrow of the whole event. We lament over the way Jesus was mistreated unjustly arrested, murdered by crucifixion. And we even continue to lament in our own day the way the world treats the Lord Jesus Christ. Even in our day, the sinless one, the one who gave himself because of his great love, the world uses his name as a common curse word. And we mourn over that. We mourn over the fact that the world has rejected the truth. Not only has the world rejected the truth, but the world has a complete contempt for the person of the truth. Again, we continue to see how Jesus is mistreated even in our day. And then 
I mean, it just keeps piling on. And then on top of all of that, you can't overlook the issue when you read verse 20, you're going to weep and lament. Again, the disciples rightly believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And at this point, and the points that come after the cross, obviously, they've got to be tremendously disappointed because all the expectation they had of the, the Messiah coming, setting up his kingdom, ruling from Jerusalem, are not going to come to pass, at least not yet. Remember after the resurrection, the Lord appears to uh, his disciples walking there on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24. And at that moment, when the Lord starts walking with them, they are unaware that it is he speaking to them. Luke 24, verse 17, he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad, the text says. Verse 19 says, Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty indeed in word in the sight of God and all the people, and the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. And here it is, verse 21 of Luke 24, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it's the third day since these things happen. I mean, you can hear the discouragement in their voice. You can hear the disappointment. All their hopes, all their dreams have been shattered. And I think you also see that in the attitude of Thomas in John 20, verse 21, 25, when he's been told that Jesus is alive. Again, John 20, verse 25, the other disciples therefore were saying to him, to Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the imprints of the nail and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hands into his side, I will not what? I will not believe. Now, I don't think that Thomas is given to greater a propensity of unbelief than anybody else. Uh, I mean, all the other disciples didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ until they saw him either. Thomas is a realist. And as a realist, Thomas knows that dead men tend to stay dead, right? Dead men tend to stay dead. So Thomas wasn't interested in some kind of mystical fairy tale story about a resurrection. So again, it's his extreme disappointment in how things have turned out to that moment that causes him to speak the way he speaks. Again, a little while you will no longer behold me, and in a little while you will see me. Again, verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. James Boyce makes this comment. He says, the disciples experienced acute sorrow because of their loss, the joy of the world, and their disappointments. But then came the resurrection, and their sorrow was changed to joy. It was not that their sorrow was followed by joy, but joy came afterwards. That sorrow was, uh, uh, that, that joy came afterward, but what was sorrow still remained. No, he says that the sorrow itself was changed into joy. And what had been the cause of their sorrow before was now in equal measure joyous. Before the resurrection, the death of Christ appeared to be a total tragedy. It was meaningless to the disciples because they did not understand that it was God's atonement for their sin or the sin of the world. Yet it was the death of Christ, uh, the one whom they deeply loved, that Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, they, when he rose from the dead, they understood the cross was not a tragedy, but the cross was a triumph. Perspective changes after the resurrection. So let me read that again. It says, when Jesus rose from the dead, there, they understood that the cross was not a tragedy, but a triumph. So Jesus says, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. Listen, but your sorrow, your sorrow will be turned into joy. Again, he's trying to give them hope and encouragement, trying to give them a different perspective that they can't understand because they can't see what's in front of them. Again, he's saying what had been the cause of their sorrow before will now be in equal measure joyous. Again, James Boyce makes a great comment that I don't know if you've thought about before, but I thought it was interesting. Boyce says this, Did you ever notice as you read the New Testament that the cross of Jesus Christ is never referred to in a tone of sorrow? Stop and think about that. Do you ever notice as you read the text of the New Testament, the cross of Christ is never referred to in a tone of sorrow? It is true that when the disciples tell of their own feelings during the three days between the crucifixion and the resurrection, as they do in the Gospels, they reflect in a historical way they were in sorrow then. But afterward, whenever they wrote about the cross, they spoke of it not as a cause for sorrow, but a cause for great joy. Even Paul speaks of the cross as his glory in Galatians 6.14. But he says, if there were nothing but the crucifixion, glorious as that might be, it would not, uh, under, we would not understand it 
and it would be a cause of sorrow for us. But having had a resurrection, having known that the one who was crucified and buried rose again on the third day, according to the scripture, as the Bible tells us, we rejoice in that cross, which is now seen as victory. You're going to weep, you're going to lament, the world's going to rejoice, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. That's a biblical perspective. So again, the first line of interpretation, verse 16, a little while, right? Literally just in hours, you will not see me, but then you will see me again. Uh, it just simply means that Jesus' death, uh, then his uh, entombment, three days later, he, he raises from the dead, and, and the resurrection that follows, they're seen, uh, 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 they see him again, and they're overwhelmed with joy. That's probably the most popular interpretation of the three. Now we're going to skip over number two, and we're going to go right to three just for a couple minutes here. Uh, so we're going to skip over two. I'll come back to it. But we're going to go to the third line. A little while you will no longer behold me, and again a little while you will see me. Now, some people believe that Jesus, again, is speaking of the first little while, again, the events of the cross, and then his resurrection, uh, ascension. And, and then at the time of the church, it's all-encompassed. And again, the, the time of the church, the 2,000 years that has been going on at the moment, uh, is a relatively short period of time in light of eternity. So for a little while, we're not going to see him. A little while, you will no longer behold me. But after the Lord returns again at his second coming, he comes in glory. The world, the, the church will see him. And then again, all of our earthly sorrows are going to be turned into eternal joy. And again, again, the second time, a little while, you'll see me. So some people believe it's really the age of the church, that little while. That's what he's talking with. Now, you know, you, you look at that one, and you go, well, it's got some things that are true. Uh, we all believe that the Lord's coming back a second time. Amen? Right? We, we believe that's reality. But I think that interpretation is probably a little hard to accept uh, in, in the context, that this is exactly what he's saying to these men at the moment. So I, I think the third option is a little bit forced. They certainly wouldn't have understood uh, from their perspective, uh, especially when you consider the fact that who is he speaking to? He's speaking to them, okay? Uh, you, right, you. Speaking to them. He's speaking to the 11 disciples. And none of the 11 disciples are going to be around at the second coming. Again, look, for a little while, you will no longer behold me, and in a little while, what? You'll see me. So I'm not quite sure that we can go with uh, interpretation number three. Got number one, got number three. You're used to me being out of order. It's good. So now we'll go back and do number two. Might be a hint why I left this for the last one. A little while you will no longer behold me. And again, a little while you'll see me. Again, it has to do with the events of the cross. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension. Then the events of Pentecost. But again, in the, con in the context, he's talking, the context broader, right? He's been talking about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He he's been telling them, they don't understand, but listen, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send the helper. Look back up at verse 7. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, right? And then he says this, verse 10, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. Verse 11, concerning judgment because the rule of this world is but judge. We went through all of that. But again, honing in there in verse 10, I go to the Father. I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me. And I know a lot of your translations, uh, the word see, S-E-E, -E, is there. You no longer see me. The N-A-S has the word behold. Theereo is the word. You no longer gaze, spectate at. You, you no longer uh, uh, view intently, attentively. A little while longer, a little while, and you no longer... Uh, you will no longer behold me, again, theoreo. In a little while, you will see that word is a different word. So there's an intensity on the first one and just a kind of an observation by the second one. But I think here's the key. Some of the disciples, therefore, said to one another, what is this thing that he is uh, 
telling us, a, a little while and you will not behold me, and a little while you will see me, because I go to the Father. Again, so that's verse uh, chapter uh, uh, 16, verse 17. It, it's true that death's coming tomorrow. It's true that his resurrection is coming on Sunday. And then after his resurrection, he's going to stay around for 40 days before he ascends to the Father, according to Acts 1, and he's going to teach them. Therefore, at that time, from that time forward, a little while, you will no longer behold me. You'll no longer gaze upon me. You're going to lose sight of me. You won't see me because I've gone to the Father, and here's the, here's the key until... What's the next event after the ascension? Pentecost. Until the day of Pentecost. In the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out. He's going to permanently indwell the genuine believer. And again, a little while, you will see me how? Through the person of the Holy Spirit. You'll see me with greater insight. You'll see me with greater understanding because the person of the Holy Spirit is coming and he's going to pour out truth. And what does he do? He points everybody to... Me, he glorifies me. You're going to really see me. Now again, look back there at 7. I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. If I go away, I'll send him to you. Go back to John chapter 14. In verse 16. John 14, verse 16. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Next verse, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. What? I will come to you. I will come to you after a little while. The world will behold me no more, but you will behold me. There it is again. Behold, Thereo. Because I live, you shall live. In verse 20, In that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to come to you through the Holy Spirit who's going to be poured out because of the union of the the believer with God, the the union of the Spirit in the Godhead with redeemed humanity. I will come to you. Again, go back to chapter 16, verse 16. A little while you will no longer behold me. After my death, burial, resurrection, ascension to the Father, and a little while you'll see me. You'll see me again when the Holy Spirit comes after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes to permanently indwell you. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you after a little while. The world beholds me no more, but you will behold me. You will gaze upon me because I live. You shall live in those days. You shall know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Again, that's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as believers are now united with Christ. Now, the, the second option, my uh, initial blush on the first run through might not appear to be the favored one, and we're going to go with the death and resurrection, that's it. But as you look into it more, uh, this is exactly what he's saying. Yes, it's true, they're going to be overwhelmed by sorrow at Christ's death and the events of the cross. Uh, yes, it's true, they're going to be overjoyed uh, at his resurrection, and they're going to be comforted again to see him. But then at his ascension, he's going to go to the right hand of the Father. And, and again, the promise is that he would come to them again, and not to other men at the second coming, but to them. And again, these disciples whom the Lord is speaking, I, I, you will no longer behold me, and again, in a little while you will. You're going to gaze again. You're going to have a, a not just see, but you're going to see with a greater clarity, a greater understanding. Again, if that uh, meant he was going away and, you know, 2,000 years he's going to come back, I don't know about that one. If that meant that uh, they're going to see him after his death and resurrection, no doubt their joy, they, they would be excited. But it wouldn't be a permanent joy because after the resurrection he's going to ascend for the fa- to the Father, therefore he's going to leave them again. Truly, truly, verse uh, 20 of chapter 16, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament 
The world will rejoice and be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Now, the joy that he's talking about in this context is, is a permanent joy. It's not a temporary joy. Drop down to verse 22. Therefore, you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. So again, the kind of joy that Christ is talking about is a permanent joy, a joy that can't be taken away. So again, I would contend that the most accurate interpretation of verse 16 is the Lord's promise is that they, that they would see or that he would see his disciples again and they would see him at the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. After his work on the cross of redemption was accomplished, after he ascended to heaven, after Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to be with the disciples forever, the Spirit of Christ, the, the Spirit of Christ, the one who magnifies Christ, the one who glorifies Christ, the one who, who reveals Christ to us is the one who's going to give us greater insight, a greater clarity of understanding into the mysteries of Christ, the mysteries of the gospel, and the mysteries of the person of Jesus Christ. How is he ultimately going to do that? Give you a hint through this book. We, best of my understanding, we, none of us in the room, have physically, with our eyes that are in our forehead, have physically seen the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But we see the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture all the time. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to come back to you, and you're going to have a greater clarity, a greater understanding that you ever had when I was here physically. That's why it's to your advantage that I go away. That's why it's to your advantage Again, the Lord promised his presence would be with his people permanently. Matthew twenty-eight twenty. Lo, I am with you. Next word. I can't hear you. Always. Even to the end of the age. That's what he's talking about. I will come to you. Now, I can prove it. How? By the text. That's how we do things here. Right? The Lord tells them, verse 21, right? Here's the interpretation uh, here's the, the illustration that gives clarity to the interpretation. Again, back up to verse 16. A little while you'll no longer behold me. A little while you will, you, uh, you will see me. Again, they don't understand. Some of the disciples, verse 17, were saying to one another, what is this thing that he's telling us? A little while and you will not behold me. In a little while you'll see me. And then he says, because I go to the Father. Again, that's the ascension. So they're saying, what is this thing that he says? A little while, and we don't know what he's talking about. Verse 19, Jesus knew he wished to question him. And they said to him, you are deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, you will not behold me. And again, a little while, you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice, and, we, you, and you will be sorrowful. But your sorrow is going to turn into permanent joy. And again, verse 21, here's the illustration that proves the permanence of the joy that Christ is not only offering, but really promising his disciples. Verse 21, whenever a woman is in travail, means labor. She has sorrow. It means pain. Because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more. Anguish is an interesting word, philipsis. It literally means pressure. Affliction, uh, affliction, tribulation, distress. It's just suffering and pain. Now, we understand that, but to some extent, um, childbirth, because of the fall, that labor is labor. Giving birth to a child is labor. Uh, and when she's about to give birth to that child, it's immense, the pain. It's because God said to the woman in Genesis 3.16, I'll greatly multiply your pain in childbirth, and pain you shall bring forth children. And if you're a woman in the room who ever gave birth to a child, you can attest to that fact personally firsthand. If we who are fathers have watched our wives give birth. We can attest to it to some extent, but thankfully, only secondhand, <laughs> right? Because if men are having babies, we're not doing that again, right? It's not happening. The pain is so immense. But what happens when the child is born? The Lord says when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. So all the anguish, all the pain, all the suffering is forgotten immediately and replaced by joy that is not temporary, but that joy is what? Permanent. The anguish is no more for the joy of the child has been born to the world. And that's the illustration that the Lord uses here to make the point, and it's a perfect illustration. The events of the cross are no doubt going to cause them great pain and great suffering. 
but the event that causes them the greatest pain and the greatest suffering and grief is going to be the very same event that is going to bring them the greatest permanent joy because out of the events of the cross comes their salvation. In the context of the story of the birth of uh, that child that brings permanent joy to the parents, again, it's compared to the permanent joy of our salvation. Christ, the perfect substitute, pays the penalty for our sin so that we might be uh, forgiven. Uh, and, And he is judged in our place. We sang about that this morning. And that which causes the temporary anguish is going to be that which is turned into eternal joy. Again, verse 19, Jesus knew they wished to question him, and he said to them, you're deliberating together about this. He said, a little while you will not behold me, and again, a little while you'll see me. So again, he, he knew their discussion. He knew they didn't understand. But he also knew they weren't going to ask any more questions because they don't understand. So he's going to teach them. He's going to help them understand. They're perplexed. They're deliberating amongst themselves. What does this mean? A little while you'll not behold me, and a little while you'll, you'll see me. Again, they don't have a category for a dying messiah. They don't have a category for understanding his resurrection, although he said he's going to die and he's going to be raised from the dead. They should. I mean, weren't they with him back in John chapter 11 when he raised Lazarus from the dead? But again, sorrow is so overwhelmed them at the moment. They, they, that reality completely escaped their minds. So again, he's trying to comfort them. He's trying to encourage them. Yes, great sorrow, great suffering, anguish is coming. I'm going to depart. I'm going to send to the right hand of the Father, but I'm going to send you the Helper. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit, I will return. I will be with you. I will be in you. And I'll be in you forever. You fast forward to the New Testament, and you get a greater understanding of that reality and the phrase that Paul always likes to use in his writing, two words, in Christ. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? Romans 8, verse 9, You're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body of, is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. So closely intertwined, so closely closely interrelated are the members of the Godhead. Uh, I mean, the, the, all three members of the Godhead indwell the true believer. In Christ, with you, in you. Verse 20, truly, truly. Uh, The King James says, verily, verily. The NIV says, I tell you the truth. He's just trying to underscore the importance of what he's about to say to his disciples. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Again, the world represented by the false religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, they are going to rejoice. Those who so bitterly uh, opposed him. And the body of Jesus is going to lie dead. The disciples are going to be devastated. They're going to be heartbroken. But that's not the end of the story. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Genomai is the word turned. means to become or to come into existence, begin to be. I, I really think another way that you can say that, that your sorrow is going to begin to be joy, is the whole goal of the cross is your joy. The whole goal of the cross is your joy. The very thing that plunged the disciples into grief and despair is the very same event that is going to cause them their greatest joy. That's what caused them the greatest grief and despair is going to be the very same event that's going to cause their greatest joy. Because at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, our redemption was won. Forgiveness granted. Again, Christ paying our penalty as the substitute. Raised on the third day because of our justification, Romans 4, verse 25. So again, the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ on one hand is the the greatest tragedy, the vilest offense and miscarriage of justice by sinful men against a holy God, the greatest act of human wickedness. But God in his great grace, God in his great power, turns the greatest act of human uh, wickedness into the greatest act of good for men. The greatest act of human wickedness into the greatest source of joy because Jesus Christ takes our place, defeats death, and we are justified before God. Drop down to verse 22 again. Therefore you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice. So again, the heart of the believer rejoices because God has forgiven his sin in Christ. Justified. 
we stand under no condemnation, justified because of the resurrection. That's what the resurrection tells us, or Paul tells us concerning the resurrection, Romans 4.25 again. Again, the believer stands in a position of no condemnation. There is absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So again, not only are we forgiven and under no condemnation, we're in a new relationship with God. Now God in heaven is our Father, not our judge. Never again. And not only that, but the believer is permanently indwelled by the Holy Spirit, permanently indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. And now the Spirit of Christ is alive in us all who are genuine believers, empowering us, enabling us, uh, never leaving us alone. It's the Holy Spirit who uh, illuminates the truth to us. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us understand the truth. He opens our mind to the truth as it's recorded in the, the, the Bible and the New Testament in the context. He's the one who glorifies the person of Jesus Christ more and more. He's the one who causes us through an understanding of the truth to fall in greater and greater love with the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one who's conforming us more and more to the image of Christ, making us look more and more like him daily. You won't see me for a while, but I'll come back. I'll take up residence within you. And your heart will rejoice and no one, and no one takes your joy away from you. Now, obviously, we live in a fallen world. There's wickedness all around us. It's things we cannot, should not rejoice in. But listen, the truth is the believer should be the most joyous person on the planet. The believer should be the most joyous person on the planet because their sins have been forgiven. They've been reconciled to God through Christ, and now Christ dwells in them. And no one can take our salvation away. Every genuine believer is secure eternally in Christ. Remember the words of Christ, John 10, 28, I give eternal life to them. They shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. No one can take your salvation. Therefore, that is a cause for what? Permanent joy. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. We're not responsible for the circumstances around us in a fallen world, but we are responsible for our joy. Because that has been won for us at Calvary's cross by God's kindness and grace through the person of Jesus Christ. Your heart will rejoice and no one takes your joy away from you. Again, the Christian should never live a joyous life. And again, just as sorrow once filled these men's hearts, Christ wants to bring understanding to them. He wants joy to be now the predominant emotion in the life of these men, the life of the believer, because, again, of Christ's tremendous love for them, because of his propitiatory work, his atoning work on Calvary's cross, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father, his permanent indwelling of those whom he loves, those whom he has called to himself, those whom he has laid down his life for. Your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you, because when you understand who Christ is and you understand what Christ has done for you, And you understand the fact that Christ lives within you. Here it is. Your sorrow will be turned into joy.